things I love about, about God's word is it's not just like some religious stuff. It's about truth to help us with the real stuff of life. About how do we relate to one another? It, the, the book talks about that. Like how should we go about our work and our work life in the marketplace? It's in here. About sex and why did God create sex and how do we operate within his boundaries? It's in here. And that God has given us truth to help us what navigate life. And the God who created us has given us guidelines on how we can enjoy life to the fullest as he intended his creating. And we're going to talk about some of that this morning. But I was thinking about a date, a significant date in my life. The date was March the 15th, 1986. It was on that day that I was standing before an altar, uh, an altar kind of like this, had a pastor in front of me. My wife-to-be was standing beside me. It was on that day that I made vows, I made a commitment to honor my wife, to cherish my wife, and to serve my wife for the rest of my life. Um, I have, if you're married today, this is what you have. Here's a new way to look at marriage. God granted me the privilege of serving Charlotte for the rest of my life as I made commitments to her. And I was committing to be faithful to her and to her alone. It wasn't like, okay, it's Charlotte and other females. So if you know my wife, that wouldn't have worked. (laughs) I wouldn't be here today. No, I made vows to serve her and to be faithful unto her all the days of my life. And if you're here today and you're married, then you probably made a similar commitment. When you committed your life to that one individual, you were committing to be faithful to, to honor. It wasn't your mate and others. It was your mate and your mate alone, right? You were committing to be faithful. You were committing to live your life for one and one alone. Well, if we can take that idea and bring that into a relationship with God, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you did more than just pray a prayer. Now, obviously, you probably prayed a prayer, something like, Lord, forgive me, come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. And that was a part of the process. But more than just praying a prayer, this is what you were doing. You were committing your life to him. You were choosing to follow Jesus rather than following the ways of the world. You were choosing to honor God in your life and with your life. Now, none of us are perfect, right? I mean, look around the room today. What you see is a whole bunch of imperfect people, right? We're just imperfect individuals who are trying to follow Jesus. Like, we don't always get it right. We make mistakes. We sin. We make wrong choices. And the good news for us this morning is this, that God's mercies are new to us every day. Can I get an amen on that? And that God forgives us. So being a follower of Jesus is not about being perfect, but it is about saying, God, I'm living my life for you and you alone. It's not you and others. It's not you and the world. No, God, even as you committed your life to your mate, to you and you alone, I will, I will share my life only with you. I'll be intimate only with you. So it is in your relationship with God. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, that's the statement that you were making. You were saying, God, I want to go your way, not the world's way. 
In fact, there's an interesting passage of scripture in, in James, James chapter four, verse four. And I'm going to read this from the message paraphrase. It's going to be on the screen, but, but listen to how this reads. It says, if all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. You're cheating on God. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that God is a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives is better than anything else you'll find. So what we don't want to do, folks, is we don't want to cheat on God. Like it should be our desire and our ambition to honor God in our lives and and with our lives. If you can think of it like this, the, the Christian journey, the Christian faith begins with a step of faith. And that step of faith leads to a walk of faith. So we're called to walk out our faith in such of a way that our lives bring worship to God. Matter of fact, if you look, I don't know how it reads in your Bible, for mine, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the header of that chapter says, living to please God. And that's the challenge. What does a faith alive look like? It's a faith that's lived out in a way that we're honoring God, that we're pleasing God in our lives and with our lives. And Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're going to get to 1 Thessalonians 4 in just a moment. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, listen to what Paul wrote there. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, not just your spirit, not just your soul. Notice he says, offer your, your bodies as living sacrifices. Notice what it says next, holy and pleasing to God. Then we should be living out our lives in a way, again, that's, that's holy, separated from the world and pleasing to God. He goes on to say, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the challenge here is what? To honor God with our bodies, to honor God with our lives. So rather than following the pattern of the world, rather than following the ways of the world, Paul says, don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That was the challenge that Paul was bringing to the believers at Thessalonica, I believe, it's the challenge for us as well today. So let me tell you what's happening here uh, in the context, in the setting of which Paul was writing this. We have believers in Thessalonica who come to know Christ as their Savior. I mean, they've been radically saved. They've discovered the wonder of God's mercy and his grace. Their lives have been turned around, but now they're living out their faith life um, in a culture that was basically anything goes. They were living out their faith life in the midst of sexual immorality. I mean, on every corner in the town of Thessalonica or in the city of Thessalonica, there would have been these temples to worship the so-called gods. And a part of the religious activity of these so-called gods was temple prostitution. So basically, there was a prostitute on every corner. And sexual immorality was just like a way of life. It wasn't thought of being abnormal. It was thought as being normal. So Paul here is writing to these believers, instructing them how to live out their faith and how to honor God with their lives. Again, rather than following the ways of the culture, he's calling them to a way of life that would not only be for their good, but it would be for God's glory, their benefit and God's glory. And I think today we have the same opportunity. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we should not live as the world lives, or we shouldn't live just to please ourselves. You know, I think that probably the greatest, one of the greatest deceptions of our culture today is this. You can do whatever you want, and you should do whatever you want and whatever makes you happy. Like, it's all about you. You should be, you should be fulfilled in your life. I hear that all the time. Well, I'm, this is the decision I'm making because I have a right to be happy. The deception of our culture today says this, it's all about you. And can I tell you something this morning? I don't want to offend you, but friends, it's not all about you. Matter turn to your neighbor this morning and tell him it's not all about you. Now, don't take that too far, husbands and wives. But it's not, but that's the lie of our culture. Our culture says, well, you should be happy. So why should we honor the marriage vows? Why should we honor um, sex within the confines, the boundaries of covenant marriage relationship. Well, our culture says, well, you know, you deserve, you know, you get to determine what you want to do. You get to determine what's right or wrong. And again, what is the lie of our culture? So Paul here calling the Thessalonica believers, he said, don't live the way the culture's living. No, there's a better standard. There's a, there's a higher standard. See, authentic faith must change who we are and how we live. Must change who we are and how we live. Or it's not authentic. The focus or aim of our lives should be honor God in all that we do. So the Apostle Paul gives us really some straight up insight on how we can live our lives to please God. So what does that look like? As we're living faith alive, what does it look like for you, for me, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. Three things I want to talk about this morning. The first is this. For, it's, it's that you choose to control your passions. We're going to live to please God. We're, we're choosing to control our passions. Can we agree this morning that sexual passion is good? It's not bad? Yes. <laughs> Can we agree that sex is good and it's not bad? Yes. Come on, men, help me out. Sexual intimacy was created by God for our pleasure within the context of a covenant marriage relationship. Listen, if you go all the way back to the beginning, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve and he brought Adam and Eve together in the first marriage relationship, this is what he said to them. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, the first thing he told, one of the first things he told Adam and Eve is go have sex. Go procreate, right? I mean, it's in the Bible, folks. You don't have to just say, hey, he's went off the edge. No, read, read the book. One of the first things God said to Adam and Eve as husband and wife is enjoy each other. I've created something for your pleasure, for your enjoyment, for your benefit, and for procreation. So sex and sexual intimacy, sexual passion is not bad. It's good as to God's design. What has become bad is that when we have sexual passion, that's out of control. When we have sexual passion, that's outside of the boundaries that God defined for our benefit. So, so sexual passion is not bad. It's good. But the problem comes when there's no control. It's like let me give you, I want to throw a couple images on the screen this morning that I hope will stick in your mind. How many of you enjoy a nice fire in the fireplace? 
Not so much now in the summer, but in the fall, you get in the winter. Man, there's nothing like a fire in the fireplace. Man, it's, just, it's relaxing, comforting, just to sit in front of a fire and enjoy for the fire in the fire. So can we agree that fire in the fireplace is good? But what happens when fire gets outside of the fireplace? How many of you would agree this is not good? Are you with me? Fire in the fireplace is good. Fire outside of the fireplace is not good. Sexual intimacy within the confines of the covenant marriage relationship as God is designed is like fire in the fireplace. But when we are out of control and we don't have control of our sexual passions, the house catches on fire. It becomes destructive. Here's two more images. How many of you enjoy a nice river? Flowing, relaxing, life-giving. Can we agree on that? But when you take that river outside of its boundaries, outside of its banks, like at flood stage, what happens? Destruction. Wreckage. See what happens when the water's outside of the banks. As long as the water's inside the banks, it's good. But when you're at flood stage and the water is outside of its boundaries, then you end up with devastation. And so it is as it relates to sexual intimacy. So it is as it relates to sexual passions. So sex is good. It's fulfilling. It's for our benefit as long as we respect and honor the boundaries that God's defined. If we take it outside of the boundaries, again, it becomes destructive. What God intended for our good actually becomes that which is, is to our harm. So listen to what the Apostle Paul, let's look to the word this morning. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one begins by saying, we are to live our lives to please God. So if you would identify, if you would self-identify as a follower of Jesus, and the scripture says that we are to live our lives every day to do what? To please God. And then he goes on in verse three to say, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should notice, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you. Notice verse seven, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Notice, Paul says here that it's God's will that you be sanctified. And this word sanctify is not a word that we use a lot. It's not a word that we go around and say, well, I'm sanctified. But it's a good word. So let me kind of expound on this word to be sanctified. It's God's will that you, that I would be sanctified. Sanctification is the process of being separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. Now, holiness does not involve withdraw, withdrawing from the world so much as participating in the world in a different way. As we are doing life in a broken world, we're to operate with a different set of values. 
Why? Because we've been called to be holy. It's God's will that you be sanctified, that you be set apart, that you be different. It's interesting, this word holy, oftentimes we allow it to trip us up. But the Greek word hagios for holy simply means to be set apart from, to be different from. In other words, we are to live different than the world. We're not to look like the world. We don't address sex and sexual intimacy and sexual passion as the world does. Why? Because we are called to be sanctified, holy, set apart, different. And that we're taking this gift that God has given, the gift of sexual intimacy, and we're enjoying it again in a way that, that honors God. So to be sanctified means this, we're, we're to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're not, again, we're not living as the world. You know, the, the challenge for the believers in Thessalonica is that they were in this culture that kind of had the motto of like anything goes. Like whatever you want, that's what you should have as it relates to sexuality. Much like our culture today, there, there were no standards concerning how to honor God with the body. And so that's why Paul is writing these words. Rather than taking what God's created for our good and abusing it and allowing it to become destructive, God's saying, no, here's, here's how you engage in, here's how you enjoy what I've created for you. And we're to, we honor God as we are living with control, as we're controlled in our sexual passions. Now, Paul gives us here three statements within this section of scripture that I just read about what it looks like to live our lives pleasing to God concerning this issue of sexuality and sexual passions. The, the first is this, avoiding, se- uh, uh, excuse me, holy living that pleases God requires avoiding sexual immorality, covering a range of sexual sin that goes against God's design for sex, and this is God's design It's one man and one woman for life. It's God's design. Whether you like it or not, it's up. Listen, it's not up for a vote this morning. This is God's design. This is God's way as to how we can best function. So God's not some cosmic killjoy that's trying to keep us from fun. He's the God who knows not only how we are created, but he knows what's best for us. Therefore, he's given us guidelines for our benefit. It's, it's kind of like if you're a parent this morning, you have children in your home. Not only do you have children in your home, but you also probably have some knives in your home. If your home's like our home, there's a drawer that's the knife drawer. Now, how many of you know knives are not bad? Knives are good. Very useful. That's why you have them in the kitchen. But along with the knives, as it relates to their children, you've given them some guidelines, right? You've given them some direction. Why? Because you don't want them to harm themselves by just getting in the knife drawer and going crazy with knives. In the same way, God's saying, hey, here's some guidelines, not for your harm, but for your good, for your benefit. Paul further expounds on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 18, listen how the scripture reads here. It says, flee from sexual immorality. How many of you know flee means to run? Right? Head in the other direction. Don't run toward the problem, run 
from the problem, flee from sexual immorality. He goes on to say, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, to your own harm. That's what he's saying. So do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Notice this last, this last line. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Don't abuse and misuse your bodies as it relates to sexual in- intimacy and sexuality. Paul's saying, no, honor God. Honor God with your bodies. So holy living that pleases God requires controlling our bodies and our passions rather than being controlled by them. We're ruling over our passions rather than allowing our passions to rule over us. We're choosing to be in control, self-controlled rather than out of control. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a NASCAR race. I'm a big NASCAR fan. And as I was watching the race, there was a driver um, who had a brake failure. I don't know what the problem was with the car, but the, the brakes just went away. So now we have a, a, a car with power, potential, and speed, and it's out of control because there's no brakes. And as a result of being out of control, as a result of having no brakes, that car wrecked. And not only did it wreck that car, but it wrecked several other cars. It it didn't just take that driver out of the race. It took several other drivers out of the race. What what was the problem? The driver was out of control. I mean, in this illustration, it wasn't so much his fault. It was a mechanical failure. The brakes failed. But the point is the car was out of control and it wrecked. And can I tell you, friends, what happens when we're out of control as it relates to sexuality is wreckage happens. People wreck their lives. Living holy in a way that pleases God means we're controlling our bodies rather than being controlled by our bodies. We're we're ruling over our, our passions. I think holy living that pleases God also requires not manipulating others for sexual pleasures. You know, sexual sins, really regardless of their nature, are self-centered and usually involve the exploitation and use of another for selfish reasons. It's about using others and often, often abusing others for your own pleasure. It's about taking advantage of others so that you can, you can get what you want. Listen, this is the opposite. It's the opposite of how we're to live out our faith life. You never noticed how quiet it gets when we talk about sex. I just, it just seems like there's this like, you're a pin drop. And listen again to what Paul wrote. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. It says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. A holy life that honors him. And God's called us to control our passion, not, be, not to be controlled by our passion. And what we want, if you're here today, especially I'm talking specifically now to married couples, what we want is fire in the fireplace. Right? How many of this is good? 
This is enjoyable. What we don't want is the house on fire. What we don't want is to allow our passion to so control us that it destroys our home. That it hurts others. What does it look like to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God? We we choose to be self-controlled. We choose to honor and enjoy sex within the confines of God's plan and God's order. Beyond controlling our passion, Paul gives us a second way that we can live to please God. And it's by living out love. How do we please God with our lives? It's simply by loving others, living out love. Let's look back to chapter four, verse nine. The scripture goes on to say, now about your love. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking about, the answer's love. So what's Paul talking about? He says, now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God, notice, to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. In other words, he's saying, hey, you should be growing in your love. Like, like you've been loving, but like you should do so more and more. You know, what we would understand today is, is that God loves us, Right? But more than just God loving us, the scripture tells us that God is love. Like that's a part of his nature. It's a part of it. God is love and we honor God. Get this, really simple. When we live out love. When we love others. Now, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, here's a new command I'm giving you. Love one another. It says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He goes on to say, then the men, then the folks in your neighborhood, folks in your workplace, they're going to know that you're my disciple by how you love. It's interesting, not just here in John 13, it's interesting that 13 different times in the New Testament, we are commanded to love. To live out the love of Christ in a way that it's impacting others. More than just talking about love, love should be evident in our lives. And as we, as we love others, as we're living out love, then this is what it is. It's worship to God. It's honoring to God. You know, just yesterday afternoon, I got to serve with some awesome volunteers. There was probably 50, maybe 60 Grace Covenant folks at Smithville Park, we did an outreach there yesterday, and man, all kinds of energy, kids running everywhere. We had free lunch, we had uh, all kinds of games, we had face painting, we had balloon animals. Listen, your pastor was making balloon animals yesterday. If you want a dog, see me before you leave, and I can get you a dog. At the end of the day, we gave out, I don't know, several hundred backpacks full of school supplies. We were just, we were just there serving a community of folks and representing Jesus. Really simple. We were there loving on people. And in that, 
that we had an awesome worship service this morning. At one point, I thought we were all going to be raptured. It was good. But can I tell you that the worship was just as vibrant at Smithville Park yesterday as it was here this morning? Why? Because we were there. Listen, don't make it difficult. Don't make it complicated. If you make it difficult and complicated, we won't do it. I was privileged to partner with about, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 folks from Grace Covenant yesterday in this unbelievable worship experience as we were simply living out the love of Christ, handing out backpacks full of school supplies. And what does it look like to live our lives pleasing to God? Paul says here that we should live out love, that love should be this identifying quality in our lives. Here's a final way, really quick, that Paul says we can live out our lives to please God, and it's by being responsible. Turn to your neighbor and say, be responsible. Husbands, you can say that here. You can't say it at home. Be responsible. In other words, take the gifts and the abilities that God's given you and put them to work. Rather than being a taker, be a giver. Rather than living dependent on others to take care of you, Paul's saying here, be responsible. Be responsible to provide for yourself and provide for your family. Look back to chapter 4. I'm going to read two more verses. Verse 11 and verse 12. Notice what Paul says here. He says, "And, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business And work with your hands just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So what's the problem that Paul's addressing here? It's this. There were some loafers in the early church. They were sponging off others. They were taking advantage of others. And this is why. They thought that like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And if it's not tomorrow, certainly by the end of the week, Jesus is coming back. So why should I work? Why should I worry about there being food in the pantry? Like Jesus is coming back and my goodness, we wouldn't want to just leave a bunch of stuff on the shelf, right? So why should I get up and go to work? And it was in their idleness that there was just kind of all kinds of chaos playing out. They were looking to individuals who were working to provide for them rather rather than being responsible. And so Paul's saying to, to the believers in Thessalonica, not only to them, but to us, like, hey, this is how you honor God with your life. Like, be responsible. Don't be a loafer. Don't be just dependent on someone else. I've given you gifts and abilities and talents to do what? To go to work. Listen, work's not bad. Work is good. Work's not bad. Work is a way that we worship God as we take the gifts, the abilities, the talents he's given us and put those to work. What is it? It's worship to God. Paul gives the believers here three directives concerning being responsible. First, he says, don't create trouble for others. In other words, don't stick your nose in where it shouldn't be, right? Don't just be stirring because out of your idleness, you're not working. You got too much time on your hands and you're just creating all of this, all of these troubles and all of these problems. I says, don't do that. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. 
pretty direct, isn't it? Then Paul goes on to say, <clears throat> work with your hands so that your, your daily life, your daily living out of the faith may win the respect of others. In other words, let your work be your worship and your witness. You know, when it comes to the workplace, whatever that looks like for you, and I know it's probably it's so many different skill sets and jobs here in, in the room today. I mean, we have folks going to a race shop. We have folks going to the bank. We have folks going to the grocery store. We have people on construction. So, I mean, we have folks who work in so many different places, but this is my conviction. This is my belief is that the people you work with and the people you work for shouldn't hear about Jesus from your lips until they see Jesus in your work. Can I get an amen on that? Listen, if you're talking Jesus and your work's not revealing Jesus, then you're a hypocrite. Can I be that bold this morning? Listen, Listen, there shouldn't be a difference. As a follower of Jesus, you should be showing up before you're supposed to be there. You should be going above and beyond. Why? Because you're representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're not just doing a job. Your job is your worship. You're honoring God through what you do. Listen, God's given you abilities and talents, and he's placed you in a sector in the marketplace, whatever that looks like, so that you can represent Jesus there. You know, we got this whole mindset that, well, we worship on Monday and we go to, uh, we worship on Sunday and we go to work on Monday. I would say that's so not in alignment with scripture. We get together like this and worship on Sunday. And then when we get up on Monday morning to go to our workplace, wherever that's at, we get to go worship there too. Matter of fact, it's interesting and in Colossians chapter 3, the scripture directs us to do, our, to do our work as unto the Lord. What does that mean? It means every day we get to live, we get to honor God in our lives. So I said, I don't just worship on Sundays. I worship on Mondays. I know some of you think I only work on Sundays, but I actually work on Monday too. And so when I get up on Monday and I come here, listen, I give it my all. Why? Because this is what I know. I'm not just doing work. I'm living worship. And you have that same opportunity. And when that happens, not only is God honored, man, our workplaces are changed. Why? Because we're just representing Jesus. Paul says here, be responsible. Do your work. As unto the Lord. So how do we how do we please God? How do we how do we honor God with our lives? I think first we control our passions. It's not anything goes. That, listen, that's the way of the world. That's not God's way. We take what God's created, being sex and sexual intimacy, and we enjoy it as God has defined for us. Second, we we honor God simply as we're living out love. Listen, every day you get an opportunity to to go live out love. Man, as God's loved us, so we're loving others. And then we're just going to be responsible. Be the best employee you can be. You say, well, they're not fair at my work. But listen, represent Jesus anyway. Man, 
Be responsible. Do your work as unto the Lord. So the challenge for each of us as we live out of faith alive is to be holy, to be different, to be different than the world as we're representing Jesus. Tryon Edwards said it so well. I love this quote, so I put it in your notes, and I'll conclude with this this morning. A holy life is not an ascetic or gloomy or solitary life, but a life regulated by divine truth and faithful in Christian duty. It's living above the world while we're still in it. Above the world while we're, so we're here in it. We're honoring Christ in our lives. How many of you know we need help doing that? We need help walking it out. Listen, we don't want to just be those who hear the word. We want to be those who live the word. 